Uh, how many drivers, how many people here drive a car? Okay, what's the first thing you do when you get in a car? Pray. <laughs> only, when, only when you're driving, Eric. Only when you're driving and I'm a passenger. You, you put your seatbelt on. So, so let's do the actions of putting on a seatbelt because we're about to read Romans 2 and 3 and we're going to need a seatbelt and a crash helmet probably. But what are the actions for the seatbelt? Do that, pull it across, sort out the strap, clunk it in, brace yourself. All right? That's what we do. So we're going to read Romans 2. We're going to go through two and, chapters 2 and 3 right now. And if you were here last week or if you know Romans 1 well, you'll know that Paul is addressing a conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And in the second half of chapter 1, he had a right old go at the, at the Gentiles, didn't he? And the way they live. And so you can imagine the Jewish brothers and sisters there would have been like, yeah, oh yeah, I like this, Paul. You give it to them. Let them have it, Paul. And then what does Paul do? He turns his eye from the Gentiles to who? To the Jewish Christians. Wowzers. Listen to this. Let's read the last verse of chapter 1. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do all of these things that he's just said deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. And you can hear the Jewish Christians cheering. Yes, these pagan Gentiles. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment. Now he's turned to the Jews, the Jewish Christians, who were judging the Gentiles. He says, you have no uh, you have no excuse for passing on uh, for, judgment, for judgment. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Isn't that an interesting point of application straight away? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And yet we do. Human beings are judging machines. But in John 7, 24, Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, you are supposed to judge, and you're supposed to judge rightly. In other words, make right judgments, because we make these kind of assessment calls all the time, but we're to make right judgments. But the Jewish Christians were just pointing the finger at the Gentiles. The Gentile Christians were just pointing the finger at the Jewish Christians, and there was this tension between the two groups. Verse 2. This is going to be a long time. What time's lunch? Three o'clock? Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Isn't that wonderful? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Two words on that. It's one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so long and complicated, because it's a long and complicated history. And it's God sending prophets again and again down the centuries. God's patience is willing their repentance. They're 
the cry of the prophets, return to me, says God, says God. Return to me again and again and again. And so God's patience, God's active patience, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. And remember, every prophet, every prophet is always sent into a disobedient context. God's patience is intended to lead us to repentance. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, anybody? Yeah. You are storing up, it says, storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's judgment when it will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. You see, Paul is now moving in a direction. It's not just about the Gentiles. It's not just about the Jews. It's not just whether you have the created order as your witness or you have the Word of God given and revealed as your example and your witness. But everybody now will be judged by one way or another. Verse 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law and will be declared righteous. This is a very pertinent word for us. Here we are. Have you noticed you're in church on a Sunday morning? What else could you be doing? Look at the weather. No, don't look at the weather. You'll be starting to think about where you should be, where you'd like to be. We come, and we come and we hear the Word every week, week after week, month after month, year after year. Do we allow ourselves to be inoculated against the Word? I, I was talking with someone whose son grew up in the church, very much like my two boys have grown up in the church, and then rejected Christianity, rejected the gospel, so to speak. And this, this guy I was talking to was actually in quite a lot of turmoil. And we realized together that our boys had both grown up in the church and heard all of the language. Something was missing. What was it? They'd heard it, and they hadn't embraced Christ. They hadn't discovered Him, but they'd heard the words. They knew the gospel, but they hadn't apprehended Christ for himself or for themselves. That's the crucial thing. We can come week after week after week after week after week after week, year after year, and still not allow God to go to work on us. Verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not know the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. So he's talking to the Jews. They show, verse 15, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. That's the natural witness. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes excusing them and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ 
as my gospel declares. Now, I want you to know we're, we're in uh, chapter 2, and in chapter 2, there are two sets of word clusters. There's, re- there's two words that are repeated many, many times. One of them is law, and the other one is, which we're about to come to now, is the word circumcision or uncircumcision. It's just another way to refer to the Jewish, uh, the Jewish Christians and the Jewish religion in general. Verse 17, now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do not teach yourself. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. <laughs> this is sharp, isn't it? He then says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But the argument is, and he'll go on to develop this argument, is that you have to obey everything. Even one broken piece is to break the law. And therefore, circumcision suddenly becomes of no value. So it has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, notice these two word cluster groups coming together now, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If you break the law, Paul is saying, as a Jewish person who either believes in Torah or believes in Christ, if you break the law, if that's your standard, if you break it once, it's as though you haven't been Jewish. It's as though you haven't even entered into covenant relationship. And so Paul is now saying, so what are you going to do about this now? How are you going to get out of this? Paul is saying to the Jews who were mocking the Gentiles in the first chapter. Verse 26, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision, you are a lawbreaker. And here we get to the heart of Paul's gospel in many ways. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Jesus also said similar things to the Pharisees. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such person's praise is from other pe- not from other people, but from God. Now, he then has what he has, like, a, like someone in the audience who shouts out, what are they called, like a heckler. So he raises certain questions in chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision then, you might ask? And he says, well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with 
the very words of God, the oracles of God, the Word of God. What a privilege to be entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Then he says, not at all, never in a million years. Never can your unfaithfulness, get this, nullify God's faithfulness. Someone this, this week told me they weren't worthy. And therefore, God would reject them. Literally, they weren't good enough. That's to misunderstand the gospel, isn't it? It's to misapply the gospel. It's to misunderstand the sheer power of God's faithfulness. So let God be true, verse 4, and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And then he goes on again. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in then judging us and bringing his wrath upon us? And again he says, certainly not. Because if that were so, how could God judge the world? And someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some people slanderously claim that we do, let us do evil that good may result? Paul says, well, their condemnation is just. He goes on to develop this in chapter 6. What then? Shall we keep on sinning? so that we can prove God's grace that keeps abounding all the more. The more sin, the more grace. The more unfaithfulness on my part, the more faithfulness I prove with God. Paul says it's completely wrong-headed to think like that. Why would you want to do that? Why would anybody want to live an unfaithful life? Why would anybody want to live in deliberate increasing sin using the logic that God's grace will abound. Paul says your condemnation is just. And then he's building his case. This is where you need your seatbelts. Are they buckled up? Yes. What shall we conclude then? Verse 9. Do we have any advantage as a Jew? Do we have any uh, advantage? Paul says... Not at all. There's no advantage as far as standing before God. He says, for we've already made the charge. Paul's already made his case that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. And both for very different reasons. Judged according to very different patterns. Paul says, as it is written in verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good, Paul says. Not even one. Their throats are open graves and their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Has anybody got these verses as a fridge magnet on their fridge at home? 
or as a, a, a tapestry in the living room on the wall. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Isn't this what we were, church, before Christ? Before we knew Him in saving grace? We were. He says their feet, in verse 15, are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Can you put up, Carl, the slide, the John Newton quote, please? By the way, this sermon is called Unspeakable Sin and Unimaginable Grace. John Newton said, By nature I was too blind to know him, too proud to trust him, too obstinate to serve him, and too base-minded to love him. Put that on your fridge. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it is to those who are under the law, so that, listen to this, so that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God and therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. So we have every mouth silenced, the whole world held accountable and uh, everyone declared, uh, no one declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. It's pretty thorough. We should at this point get the idea that there's no exemption from this catastrophe of God's righteous decree. He says, rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And before I finish, becoming conscious of sin is God's way to awaken repentant faith. When I led the School of Biblical Studies with YWAM the year before I left for Egypt, so about 2004, 2005, something like that. There was a, a lady there in her mid-80s, 85 I reckon, and her name was Maria, and she was a missionary, a new missionary. She was wonderful, actually, and um, in many ways. And uh, she was Church of England through and through. She'd been going to church all her life. She was Anglican. She was English. Even better than English, she was Cornish. And she thought this was it. I just go. I do the thing that we do, that we've done for generations. I don't really pay much attention. I don't really understand too much. I just go. I don't think about God too much. I, don't know. I just go. Then some missionaries did a leaflet drop in her town. One of them was with YWAM, who I worked with, and it was all about discipleship and Bible study and everything else. And she looked at it and thought, I don't need this. I'm C of E. I can be a little bit cheeky to my C of E brothers and sisters because my father-in-law is C of E, my wife is C of E, and there are a few Anglicans here. We love you. This is not a kick at the C of E. It's a cultural kick because she was inoculated to the gospel and she knew it. The leaflet went in the bin, screwed up. Little waste basket. 
three days running in the morning, like the, uh, the stories in the Bible, sometimes with Daniel or some of the apocryphal stories, the basket had fallen over. Guess what rolled out? That leaflet. She put it back in for three days. And eventually she thought, I, I need to look at this. So she looked at it, realized that there was something missing in her life. What was missing? Yeah. She had everything except Christ. And suddenly she was made aware of it. And this little simple leaflet pointed that out. And in her early 80s then, and by the time I saw her on the Bible school, she was 85, she said, I don't, I don't have what I know I should have. I want to have what they've got. And so she became a missionary. She founded an orphanage in Uganda. Went out two or three times a year to support it, to fund it, to pray for them. Completely gave her life over. She'd realized that as she was reading something like Romans 2 and 3, that's not me, I'm C of E. We could say, that's not me, I'm Baptist. I've been coming here all my life. And yet somehow my throat can still act like an open grave, can't it? Sometimes when we find ourselves talking about others, either in our heads or with other people, we have these skeletons pouring out of our, of our throats. It's death. And this is why God's Word comes to us to lead us to repentance. Not just to the unbelievers, but to those who believe. And so, let's just finish Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's what Maria had missed. She didn't have faith in Jesus Christ. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. This is probably the second most famous verse in the whole Bible, the most famous one being, that's it, yeah, we mumbled it out eventually. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is probably the second most famous one, and this is the context in which it's in. Paul is saying, neither Jew nor Gentile, you're all in the same boat, chumps. All have sinned and fallen Short of the mark of the holiness of God. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, And therefore all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. This is a really complicated word in, in translation and in Greek. Sacrifice of atonement is a word that is pointing us to the mercy seat of the Old Testament, where the high priest goes in once a year and sprinkles the blood of a sacrificed goat once a year onto the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies so that God is right with his people and the people are right with God. So God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood 
to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished because of his patience. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You know, It's no wonder Paul says next, where's the boasting then? Who's going to boast now? All have sinned. Your throats are open graves. The Gentiles are not great. The Jews are not great. The law doesn't count for anything if you break one bit of it. Except for the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. That's it. And that was what awoke our friend Maria to the reality of these things, to the reality of biblical faith. So let's go to the next quote. Fleming, a Bible scholar, wonderful Bible scholar, wrote a massive 600-page book on the crucifixion. There was never a time when God was against us. Even in his wrath, he is for us. It's really important we get this. God has divine attributes that are essential to his nature. God is love. God is good. God is kind. God is merciful. God is patient. All of these things. But part of God's essential character is not wrath. Before he created the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a perfect relationship of Holy Trinity pouring out love one towards the other in the Holy Spirit, right? Where's the wrath? Where's the need for wrath? Until sin comes in. And when sin comes in, if God did not show wrath, if he didn't pursue us, he wouldn't care. He does it to bring us to repentant faith in him. Isn't that good news, church? And so we pray You know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And God does forgive our sins, really. He really does. He knows that we are just dust. He knows all of that. Unspeakable sin and unimaginable grace. Where then is the boasting, 27? It is excluded. Because of, the law, because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Everything literally is about Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything centers on him. Everything goes through him. Do we then nullify the law by that faith? Paul then says, not at all. We uphold the law. I'm just going to finish with this. The Gentiles were holding on to things that were particular to them. The Jews were holding on to things particular to them. We, 21st century British 
and other uh, ethnic nationalities, we hold on to things that are precious to us. I'm a lifelong Baptist. Here's my badge. Ta-da. I'm a member of the church. Here's my other badge. Ta-da. They would be included if we were writing this today. It counts for nothing, as important as it is. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ. For the believer to come to him, and for the, for the non-believer to come to him for the first time. For the very first time. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to read because of time. I'm just going to. I want you to, want you to ask yourselves. Do do a. Phil was telling me earlier that his car's going in for a service soon. Do a let's 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 be a, a human now, having an MOT. This is what this is what Sundays are about, right? We 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 reassess. We we reset ourselves. We repent and confess, and we go again. We go again with the extreme demand of the gospel ringing in our ears and the extreme mercy knowing that we can do it because God is good. I, I want you to do this as an assessment um, for where we are so that our partying later can be most joyful as we celebrate with Linda and Tony. This is called putting the gospel first. I would like to buy about three pounds worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I, I quite like those things, really. I certainly don't want so much gospel that I start to love my enemies, heaven forbid, I don't want to cherish self-denial. I don't want to contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. It says it here. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like just about three pounds worth of gospel, please. Father, may your word bear fruit in our lives for the sake of your kingdom. We choose you, Jesus. We choose the gospel. Help us, Lord, to choose it in all of its radical fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.